Canada has welcomed the digital economy like few other countries, but we are still reliant on physical identity documents to access government services or complete high-value transactions. Interact is working to address this gap and make a secure, convenient, and privacy-enhancing digital ID ecosystem a reality for Canadians. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Quality Content on the 2020 Network presented by Interact. I'm your host, Alex Patterson. Today on the show, the Right Honorable Paul Martin, Canada's 21st Prime Minister and driving force behind his own Martin Family Initiative. Since leaving office, Prime Minister Martin has devoted his time and energy to closing what he calls the education gap in Indigenous communities across the country. And that, that problem is at the heart of a new conversation that's emerging around Indigenous economic reconciliation. The idea that the path to true reconciliation with Indigenous peoples runs through economic empowerment. And that, obviously, begins with an education. And as I prepared my notes for my interview with Prime Minister Martin, a funny thing happened. He insisted that his program director and my friend, Chloe Ferguson, join us at the table to talk about the work that they do together. And if Chloe's name sounds familiar, it should. She is actually a return guest on Quality Content. You'll hear on a number of occasions how proud Prime Minister Martin is of the work that Chloe is doing for the initiative. And it was really fascinating to hear them both in conversation about the programs that they're so passionate about. We talked about the urgent need to address the education gap with Indigenous children, how important it is to design programs with and not for Indigenous communities, and how federal policymakers can make better choices on their path to reconciliation. I think you'll enjoy it. Joining me in the studio now is the Right Honorable Paul Martin and Program Director for the Martin Family Initiative, Chloe Ferguson. It's a pleasure to have you both here today. Good to be here. Great to be here. Great to be back for Great you. Great to be back. You're both here today, but in particular, you um, are, are here because very shortly we'll be heading into our uh, studio space for a conversation this evening with uh, the Honorable Seamus O'Regan, who's our Minister of Indigenous Services, uh, National Chief Perry Bellegarde, uh, to talk about Indigenous economic reconciliation. Uh, tickets for that event uh, went live and uh, were gone in about two and a half hours. So this seems to be like a conversation that people want to have and they want to have right now, particularly in Ottawa's policy community. Um, is that new? Has that changed since uh, your time as, as prime minister? Yes, it has. It, it, uh, I think we had a, quite a pickup when we were uh, negotiating the Kelowna Accord. Um, and uh, I think at that point that it was really a very positive uh, uh, period. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when the new government take it came over, they they essentially took the money in and uh, did not continue with the accord. But I do believe then the reconciliation, the Truth Reconciliation Commission, had an enormous amount to do with the pickup. There's a great deal more interest, um, and so there should be when mm-hmm. you when you think that. The youngest and the fastest growing segment of our population, uh, an aging population, by the way, uh, are indigenous youth. Uh, there should be a substantial pickup and a substantial understanding of uh, what's at play. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned at the end there a, a focus on, on youth. And that 
is at the core of the Martin Family Initiative, uh, which is the initiative that um, you have devoted uh, your time to since your, your time as, as Prime Minister. Um, you made a, a very smart choice in, in hiring uh, Chloe Ferguson um, to work on a lot of the early education uh, initiative. A, a question for, for, you, for you both is, why is that the big question at the heart of MFI that you're trying to answer? Why the focus on early education? Well, if if the if the issue that that concerns you is is one of morality um, and giving everybody the same chance, uh, then it's pretty hard to ignore education. Um, the reason that any of us are in this room as an as an example is because we got an education at some point, um, and if in fact somebody a hundred years ago hadn't recognized the importance of free public school education, probably none of us would be here. Um, the reason that there are not more First Nations uh, uh, in this room, as an example, is because um, the residential schools, which misused education as to try to take away the culture and the traditions uh, of a people, including their language, um, and also the fact that governments have pr continuously underfunded education uh, to the point that they were not offered the same quality education that we were. That's in the process of changing. But the reason for that Chloe and I created uh, MFI was essentially because we felt that not only did education for First Nations have to be brought up uh, to standard, but that it was important that it be education that they control, mm. that it recognize their cultures, their traditions, um, because in fact those cultures and traditions are very rich, um, and they do they are good, they are producing, and we're seeing it uh, an education uh, at a level that any Canadian would be proud to be part of. Well, Chloe, give give me a sense of um, a sense of scale of uh, either the problem or. The opportunity here. What what are some kind of top line numbers that um, kind of illustrate the the I think the opportunity here for a focus on early education? Um, sure, I think um, so. MFI really has three areas of focus um, where the majority we have nine major programs across the country, and our three areas of focus really are economic um, development and entrepreneurship at the high school level, school improvement and literacy at the kindergarten to um, fifth grade level. Mm -hmm. And then earlier on, um, which is where my focus is right now, is um, prenatal to five years old to school entry. Um, so I think across the board, um, in each of those particular areas, there's an opportunity around supporting youth um, to build businesses in their own communities, um, around um, grade literacy before grade three with the basic premise that you can't build a strong economy if you don't have a literate population. And then in the prenatal to, to school entry, the premise really is um, you can't support, we can no longer, we can't support Indigenous children without supporting Indigenous families. And so what does that look like? Um, I think in terms of um, numbers. I mean, the opportunity is that Indigenous youth, as Mr. Martin mentioned, are the youngest and fastest growing segment of our population. So not only do we have a moral responsibility, as he said, but this is um, an economic decision and we really, um, we don't have a choice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so um, in terms of what we have seen in terms of success, um, the way that MFI works is we take a pilot and scale model um, to everything that we everything that we do. So we work hand in hand with communities to support indigenous led transformation of essential services um, with a focus on education and healthcare. 
as you can tell, we're getting younger and younger. Um, right. That's right. That's the, the 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 shift seems to go earlier and earlier. And exactly. I, and, and I'm assuming that's strategic. That's an act of choice. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> to some degree, um, <laughs> it's also organic. Recognizing that, okay, we're having some success here, but if you know at the high school level, but if we have better literacy skills, our kids are going to be better set up. And then after being in the elementary schools, recognizing, okay, if we can if we can help to mitigate some of these other stressors that all of these kids are coming to school with on a daily basis, then we're going to have even better results. And I would also say that I think the research around early childhood um, development and intervention has drastically changed in the past um, 10 to 20 years um, and it, we're much further ahead in terms of what we know about about that first five years of life um, and the importance of it so really the early years grew out of out of recognizing that there was more we could do earlier and we started to think about what was that from our purview of in quotation marks education um, and what we came to was um, the science around child development and brain development, that essential kind of core story. Um, and so we went across the country, we talked to scientists, academics, practitioners, and communities running interesting programs. From there, we sat down with um, a community in Alberta and said, okay, this is the research. These are some examples of programs working. What are your priorities for your kids? And of course, they said support for young parents, language and literacy, um, identity and resiliency, um, and so what we have developed, we developed from there, was co-developed, essentially, um, early years home visitation program that pairs community-trained workers to walk with parents um, up until from pregnancy up until school entry. Um, it takes a holistic approach to well-being, combining early learning, but also, also healthy pregnancies and infancy, um, and social service navigation to try and mitigate some of those things that a lot of us take for granted, like healthy food and transportation. Um, and in this way, we are trying to create a new model for effectively supporting families from the inside out um, building community capacity to support each other and ultimately um, uh, create a, a different approach to um, indigenous children and families and their and their health from a, from the broadest mm -hmm. definition possible. Can I tell a story? I, please, absolutely. She's probably a little too modest to, to tell it. The, the essence. Of the, I'm, I'm sensing that's a that's a recurring theme for for your dynamic. <laughs> the the uh, the essence of the of the program are, are what they call home visitors. These are women from the community who have raised their own families. Who will go? They'll knock on the door and they'll meet a, a, a young, soon to be mother, uh, uh, who may be living be very poor or may not have the kinds of supports that she requires. And they said, "Look at." I'm, I'm here to help you. I want to stay with you through your pregnancy, and I want to stay with you for the first couple of years. So what uh, essentially uh, uh, Chloe did is that she went out and she met with experts from across the country, uh, indigenous experts, people who are, uh, 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 and non-indigenous experts, who but were experts in how, how do you how do you train people to help mothers, uh, and how do you what should you be doing when you're raising them and and. An enormous amount of work went into this. But what I remember her saying to me one day was, our real goal is we're now going to be sitting down with these home visitors, these mothers, and we're going to take them. They're, they're going to start meeting the children, but we've now laid out this whole training program which we're, going to, we're giving them so that they can really do the job. But she said, you know what we really hope? We hope that they make it theirs. 
then all of a sudden, one day, she called me, very, very excited. And she said, guess what, it ha- guess what happened? What? I said, it happened. And what it was was that they had spent a week training these home visitors. And then at the end of it, Chloe um, and some of the trainers said, okay, now, what do you think? They said, well, we think that, the, that 75% of this is wonderful. But for our community, 25% of it needs to be changed this way. And they, they then took, for, I think it took four to five days, in which they rewrote that program and they made it the community's program. When we take it to another community, another community will do the same thing. I mean, this was a Cree community. If you, you know, if you go to a Blackfoot community, they'll have a slightly different take and they'll change it. I think if there's anything that demonstrates the power of, of uh, uh, the early years program, it is that the First Nations and made it theirs. And that's an important part of, of MFI's model and of our approach of social action research, which is this idea that you have to start living it in order to truly be able to adapt it and change it. Um, and that's how we kind of take on every project, which we start with some principles. We start with frameworks with the full intention of, of that transformation taking place as as we move. It, what's what's really striking, and, and this has been embedded in... in um, both of your responses and, and the stories that you tell and the programs that you describe um, is the emphasis on communities owning their programs and communities um, owning their models and, and that it's theirs. Um, I imagine, like, listen, we're in Ottawa. We're in a government town. Um, Mr. Martin, you know, you know better than most that, um, you know, our, our, bureaucratic structures and our policy cycles and the the approach that we take to governing can often be top-down. Um, and so, you know, I'm wondering what... I'm wondering what lessons there are here in the model that MFI has taken in sort of preparing programs and building programs that get handed over to and are co-developed with, with communities. That, to me, buttresses up against the traditional ways in which our ministries of indigenous services and the traditional structure that we have put on managing that relationship and, and, and building relationships with indigenous communities. So are there any lessons in the model that you have uh, developed for how policy gets developed and, and implemented? Well, certainly in, in the case of, uh, of education, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be early years or whether it be later, um, in dealing with First, First Nations, Métis, or anyone, top-down doesn't work. Um, you're, you're dealing with different culture, different traditions, different history. Um, you're also dealing with, and this is, there has been an improvement here because of the truth reconciliation, but still, you're also dealing with trust that has yeah. not totally been established. There are historical uh, issues here. That's right. Yeah. And so... Uh, so, so, and the other thing, to be quite honest, is that um, very few of us have ever lived on a reserve. And uh, the reserve community is a very different community subject to very different pressures. So unless you understand that and unless you can react to that and unless you can take advantage of it, uh, then you're not, you're not going to succeed. Um, and, you know, we're not only talking about, about problems. Uh, we're going into the era 
you know, the, the great fight against global warming, um, there's no doubt uh, that the indigenous people have a greater understanding of what has to be done in the relationship to, to, to nature. Um, and when you, when you see some of these teachers, I'm not talking later on in primary school, mm-hmm. um, when you see them talking to their students, um, about the nature of a forest and about the the, the live the, the the living of the forest, um, the relationship between the trees. You suddenly realize what you're doing is you've entered into a world that's different than the one you you were raised in. But it's a world that, to be quite honest, is a lot better than the one you were raised in. The theme of tonight's conversation is uh, indigenous economic reconciliation. Usually when panel discussions happen in in Ottawa and there's events that are around uh, Indigenous, the angle that it tends to be put on is Indigenous economic development. Or We talk a lot about jobs, training, skills, big energy infrastructure projects. That's that's kind of the, the, the base level of conversation that a lot of conversations in, in this city in particular happen. Um, the, the framing of Indigenous economic reconciliation um, is something that the, the national chief has spoken about. We've, we've dealt with a couple of other, um, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Crystal Smith, who's chief counselor of the, the Heisel Nation out in, in British Columbia. Um, that concept that economic development can be a path to economic empowerment and therefore a, a, a sort of a step along the, the path in reconciliation Um I don't want to say that that's that's new, but it certainly seems to be an emergence, emerging policy lens that that people are increasingly looking through, and I'm and I'm wondering how you approach that concept. We're going to be talking about it tonight, and we will be hearing from the minister and, and the national chief. How do you approach the idea of uh, you know economic reconciliation? Well, look, are there is there a place for government programs? Absolutely, procurement. As an example, um, you you you've got to give uh, indigenous business an opportunity to bid on contracts, and um, there has to be a procurement policy that says that within a certain area, those contracts are going to go to indigenous entrepreneurs or indigenous. indigenous indigenous companies. Um, Obviously, if you're focusing on education, what you're saying is that that education is going to pay off big time, but you've also got to recognize that it's it's generational. It's going to it's going to take a while before it before it to work, and you can't you 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 have to recognize uh, that um, uh, that both sides have got to lean over over backwards to 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 to, to make to make it work. Um, the there is a, but there is a fundamental shift that is taking place. You can see it. Uh, First Nations, the Métis, and the Inuit are far more interested in the economy and in business uh, than has hitherto been the case, and that has to be encouraged. Um, and we we recognize. I mean. You know, Canada in some areas is at a disadvantage to countries like the United States or China with massive populations. We should recognize that within Canada, there are these communities are much smaller than our big our our big cities, um, and so that but. 
we're not going to succeed unless we recognize that and then unless we do what is required to encourage those uh, th- th- those businesses and allowing them to develop. And then again, what you're going to see is allowing them to establish links. I'll just give you one example of the kind of thing that I mean. The fact of the matter is in today's day and age, if you don't have the same kind of connectivity in a in a in an on in, in an on in an on reserve business, they're not going to be able to compete. So I'll tell you, it's not charity to sort of say that somebody who's living on a reserve who's opening up a business should have the same access uh, to to the cloud to or to, to the internet as somebody who's going to be you know five miles from Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just sheer common sense. And we're not going to build an economy if we basically say that only the big cities have the kind of connectivity that's required to succeed. Uh, but if we do that, not only are we going to benefit the First Nations, but we're going to benefit rural Canada. And we can't turn our backs on that. We had uh, Bernadette Jordan, the Minister of, um, of uh, Rural Economic Development in, in our uh, space actually last week. And one of the insights that we shared with her um, was some feedback that we had heard. We've got this agri-food project that we're, we're doing right now, and we've been in uh, some rural communities across Canada. And uh, I remember there was a, a farmer at one of our tables that said, you know, I run a $10 million a year business. And you would you go to a $10 million a year business in downtown Toronto and say, you got to work without the internet? And it's like, you wouldn't, right? I, I, you know, that's, that's what my company's valued at. That's what my production's valued at. I need these tools. And, and, you know, she mapped that onto a number of indigenous communities as well. Um, so I think you're, you're right. There's that, there's that palpable sense that there is, uh, there is motivation to actually follow through on some of this substantive change. Um, Chloe, you, you work a lot in communities, um, uh, usually when we, we are either talking on the phone or trying to plan something, you're usually on a highway in Alberta somewhere. That's scary. <laughs> it's, <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Mr. Martin touched on, on, on trust and, and trust building and relationship building. You guys have obviously had wild success with your programs and, um, and, but it's been hard fought and hard won. You know, what are some barriers that you yourself faced um, in building those relationships and, and how did you overcome, you know, w- w- you know, was it, was it about listening? Was it about your approach? W- what are some barriers that you faced? Um, well, I think it's funny that you brought up barriers because I was going to, I was going to speak to that in terms of what Mr. Martin was just talking about. I think the link and, and to go back to your previous question about what kind of policymakers and public servants can do as we yeah. look at Indigenous Canada. I think that's actually the first thing. I think everything that we've talked about today has shown that the strengths lie within community. Indigenous people know what is best yeah. for their communities, what is best for their business, what is best for their families and children. And our job as Canadians, as policy makers, et cetera, is to remove those barriers, um, to figure out what those barriers are, to understand. And in order to understand what those barriers are, um, some of them are clearer than others. But I think exactly to your point, um, you have to go. You have to be in community, you have to talk to people, and you have to understand what their lived experiences are. That's a critical piece of MFI. Our position is that we work with community in the way that we do so that we're developing programming that is the result of lived experience as opposed to being imposed upon lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, what did we, what have we faced? <laughs> we don't like to talk about our failures. 
Um, but I think um, what is required to be successful is putting in the time. Yeah. Um, Mr. Martin has been at this for much longer than I have. Um, but what I have certainly learned from him and learned from our partners is you have to um, put in the time, not once, not twice, not four times, <laughs> over and over and over again. Um, you have to be authentic and, mm -hmm. and genuine and ready to listen and, and believe that, that the answers are there. And one of the things I think you also, just picking up on Chloe, said is that you really have to understand that um, sometimes if there is a failure to grasp where the problem lies, it's not the First Nations right. that's failing to grasp it. Right, right. And, and when you suddenly realize, my God, I just have not understood this, uh, then, um, uh, then uh, you know, the light... I imagine that's a massive mental hurdle for a, a lot of people who work in this space. Um, you know, Mr. Martin, I, I'm, I've always been really interested in um, when people leave uh, elected office and, and, and leave leadership positions. Um, there's, there's, you can do any number of things. There's lots of, you know, board seats and, and you know, consulting and a whole bunch of stuff that, that you can do. You've devoted your time to to uh, to building MFI and and solving a a, a, a very difficult problem. Um, the big question is why. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a it, there's a there's a, a whole bunch of number of paths that I imagine that you could have taken. You enjoyed a, a, an amazing business career, uh, an amazing political career. Um, in terms of devoting, you know, the the time after leaving office, um, why structure it in this way? Why found the initiative? Why devote the time to uh, the things that you're devoting it to? Well, there are many ways of answering that, uh, of answering that question. Um, one of them is that. I was born in Windsor, Ontario. I had never met an Indigenous person. Um, I got, um, and then I got a series of summer jobs. The one that had the greatest influence was a deckhand on the Mackenzie River, the tug barges. And all of the young men that I worked with on these were Met Métis uh, or First Nations or Inuit. And um, I've often said this, you know, you get a bunch of young men together, the conversation isn't exactly the the deepest or the most wonderful, um, but when you're on when you're on a tug to, in the land of the midnight sun, uh, you you spend some time talking. And I, it was very clear these people these guys were every bit as intelligent, if not more intelligent, than my friends at home. But there was a melancholy, and I, I that's when I began to understand what the residential schools were all about. And I vowed to do something about it. And when I was in government, I did with the I. I especially when I became prime minister. And you don't do something in government and then because it's something that you're not going to continue. And so it was natural that I did. Um, what happened uh, when I left government, um, I, I ended up doing working in, in, uh, in Africa. And in fact, Chloe's first job with me was really, we, we, I sent her to the Congo. And uh, so, um, but... What happened? It was. It became very clear that, uh, to me, that listen, doing the work in Africa is really important. You really believe in it, but the time has come, and uh, to come home, and the time has come to really do uh, what's required at home. But, and that's why I did. But I, I'll tell you something, and it's a, that I get that question, and I do get the question why. Mm -hmm. um, but. 
so and the, so to which my my real answer is if if I said to you that there are there's a whole generation of young people who are not getting the kind of education that they need um, and if they don't get that education, they're not really going to be able to succeed. Uh, or if I said to you that there are babies being born who don't have the opportunity really to, to, to form a family with their mother and there is something being lost here, I think you'd say, I'm going to do something about that. And that's what this is about. Uh, it, really is, it really is that families have the right to be families and children have the right to grow up and succeed. Well, I actually think that's an amazing place to end it. Um, so I want to, and I'm also conscious of our time. We've got to get you guys uh, mic'd up and briefed up for an event. So um, Chloe Ferguson, uh, Right Honorable Paul Martin, thank you very, very much for spending some time with us today and for telling us more about MFI. If people want to take that step and do want to get more engaged and, and do want to contribute or learn more, um, what are, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, they can reach out to me. Um, my email is cferguson at themfi.ca. Um, they can also look at our website, um, which is themfi.ca. Um, and we can take it from there. <laughs> I really appreciate both your time and your perspective. Well, thank you. Quality content is hosted by me, Alex Patterson. My producer today was Sarah Turnbull, and my editor is Olivia Lebec. The 2020 Network is presented by Interact and is a production of Canada 2020, Canada's leading independent progressive think tank. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps more curious and engaged listeners like yourselves find us. You can also send me feedback directly, either on Twitter at Alex G. Patterson or by email at alex at canada2020.ca. Now, if you've not heard yet, Canada 2020 will be hosting President Barack Obama in Ottawa on May 31st. The 44th President of the United States makes his return to our stage, and we couldn't be more excited about the opportunity to bring a truly generation-defining political leader back to Canada. Tickets are on sale now at Canada2020.ca or directly at Ticketmaster. And if you're thinking that you want to be there, I encourage you not to think about it too long as tickets are going quicker than I've ever seen tickets go. As well, I'd like to take a minute to plug our amazing project, No Second Chances, which is nearing its conclusion. We're charting the rise and fall of Canada's 12 female first ministers. Our senior fellow Kate Graham and our team have been exploring their journeys. And if you want to listen to some truly powerful stories about women in leadership, subscribe to No Second Chances wherever you get your podcasts. All right, that's it for me. Until next time. Cash has been around for thousands of years, but Canadians are increasingly turning to new methods of payment, such as mobile wallets and contactless solutions to handle everyday transactions. No matter what the future of payments holds, Interact will be there to help Canadians transact with confidence across multiple platforms and devices. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.